Revelation chapter 14 this morning. If you're a guest with us, it's our normal practice. Our discipline as a church is to preach through books of the Bible one section at a time, which is a good discipline for us because it causes us to preach not only the, the easier or simpler sections of Scripture, but also the, the deeper and perhaps more challenging at times. Revelation certainly contains a number of those. But those chapters also contain God's power, God's authority, God's transformative word. And so I want to invite us to view this chapter with that expectation that we come here to God's truth, God's authority expressed in writing in this book. And let's read it with that expectation and reverence. Revelation chapter 14, we'll read the entirety of the chapter. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who has made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. 
Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of your word. January 31st of this year, Lee Cohen of CBS News wrote the following report. A massive sinkhole that has completely split a two-lane road in California's San Joaquin County has now swallowed three separate vehicles, despite the hole being clearly marked, authorities say. As she continues, just hours after the highway patrol posted about the unsafe conditions and placed road closed and flooded signs nearby, a car drove right through the flooded area on Quezon Road. Photos of the initial accident showed the car lopsided as it started to fall through the road. Despite the continuous warnings of the closure and the massive hole in the roadway that is about a car length wide, a second vehicle ended up in the collapsed roadway about a week later. In all caps, the California Highway Patrol reported, this can't be real. With photos of the incident, we're at a loss for words, they said. If only, sarcastically, there were signs or barriers that could have prevented this. And even the law enforcement agency was seemingly surprised when on Saturday it happened again. Despite the concrete barriers that had been put up since the initial collapse. This time, a four-door pickup truck ended up in the hole with its front end entirely crushed and its airbags deployed. We can't make this stuff up, the highway patrol said. This was 100% preventable. There is no excuse. The signs are clear, visible, and unobstructed. Revelation 14, like a number of chapters in Revelation, serves as a clear, visible, an unobstructed warning sign. It's warnings that the road ahead, the road of humanity, is unpassable, dangerous. It describes the future as a scene of horror with one diverted route of hope. A scene of horror with one route of of hope, And we need these kinds of chapters, humanity does and the church does, with their stark and direct and unambiguous warnings, because Americans in particular are prone to have a massively optimistic and confident view of the future. It's an unfortunate consequence of the economic prosperity of our country and for the last 50 or 60, 70 years or so, the military might of the country is that Americans tend to have a view of the future as if nothing could touch us. 
The only thing that might harm us is some confusion amongst ourselves where we cause ourselves to be our own worst enemy, but ultimately optimism will reign. And sometimes even Christians can forget what the Bible says about the future of this world and begin to place their their hope for the future and their horrors about the future in the wrong place, perhaps even reversed of where they should be. The point of this chapter, and many chapters in Revelation, I could say this about them, the point of this chapter is God's description of the future should shape our lives right now. Listen, those highway patrol, they weren't teasing it wasn't like, that. we'll get them, we'll describe the road out when really the road's fine. That, that's not what they were doing. They were putting road out, danger ahead, don't proceed, because the road was actually out. There really was danger ahead. People really shouldn't proceed. Well, God's doing the same thing. He's saying, this, this really is the future. I've been there. This really is the future. Danger ahead. Clear, unambiguous warning signs. And the goal of him doing that is to shape our lives right now because this really is the future. This really is the road ahead for humanity living in defiance of God. This really is the future for those who are willing to place their trust in God. This really is the road ahead. And God's view of the future, always, always, God's view of the future should shape the way we live our lives right now. To use the metaphor, God's signs should teach you how to drive. God's signs should teach you how to drive. God's view of the future should shape our lives right now. There's three sections, as I'm sure there are in your Bible. I'm going to walk through them with three points, and then we'll, we'll leave some time at the end to make application for the overarching warning that these passages represent. The first I might caption the heavenly preview. The heavenly preview. You notice there in verse 1 that John sees another vision of the 144,000, this time standing with the Lamb on Mount Zion, they have his name and his father's name on their foreheads. Now, we've, we've met this, this group of 144,000 earlier in chapter 7, so I won't recreate all of the descriptions that I gave for that number back then. But suffice to say, we talked about how it's a symbolic number. I don't think there's actually just that many Christians it's a symbolic number because of the combination of 12 representing God's people, the Old Testament and the New, and 12 together with multiples of 10 indicating a very large number. So as I've often said in Revelation, often it's the case that simple and symbolic descriptions are the clearest way to understand the passage. And here we have this group that represents symbolically all of God's people, this time not marked before judgment, this time pictured as they will be after the end of the age. It, now, it's possible, and some commentators say because they're described as first fruits for God, that someone could interpret, well, this is just a portion of God's people. But I, I find that unlikely since I think it's the same group as those that are described earlier. And that group, it seems very clear, is describing all of God's people from the Old and the New Testaments gathered together and symbolically represented in this group. I think that word first fruits down there in verse 4 is using a metaphor from the Old Testament where the first fruits were the offering to God. You can read about it in the Old Testament. If you just type in first fruits and search through the Old Testament, it'll, it'll come up. Offerings to God. Give the first fruits to God. So the idea is out of all of humanity, here are those who have been redeemed. That's actually what the passage calls them. They're the ones that are redeemed. They're given to God. These are God's people. 
out of all of the earth. I think that's why they're described as first fruits, not only because they're, they, they're, or not because they're some initial group of a greater harvest. No, I, th- I think this is all of God's people symbolically represented and described, here's the key point for this passage, described in terms of the holiness of their character and their dedication to the Lamb. If you notice, that's the accent here. Earlier, the, the, the emphasis is on their security when they face God's judgment on the earth. But here, they're described in terms of their character, their way of life, and their dedication as it was revealed on earth and as it is then revealed in heaven. Notice, notice that their voice sounds like the voice of the Lamb. It's like the roar of many waters and the sound of thunder. They're, pl- they're singing this unique song. A song that only they can know, and I think we can, we can assume that this song has something to do with redemption, because angels do not experience redemption, but these are the redeemed, so they sing a song that no one else can know before the throne, so this pictures them in their final victorious state, and as I've said again and again, I don't think Revelation is intended to be interpreted chronologically. This is an advanced picture of what will happen to the church when they have been raised to heaven, and they are singing the song of the Lamb, but then we are, we are given this description of what they are like. It is these, John says in verse 4, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. They are redeemed as firstfruits. And notice, in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. This heavenly preview describes those who will be victoriously in heaven at the end as those who live holy lives. Now, I I think this, again, this language is symbolic. I don't think this means literal virgins. Nowhere else in Scripture would we see a commendation of literal virgins being the only ones that God loves. I think this is speaking symbolically of purity, both of sexuality and every other aspect of life. Just for the same reason, I wouldn't say that the only people who are included here are men. Um, I, I think this is symbolic of all of God's people in their purity of all aspects of their life, their speech, their actions. This this is the type of person, John is saying, that will be victorious in the end. One who is dedicated to the Lamb, who follows the Lamb wherever he goes, who gladly looks forward to singing the song of the Lamb in his presence, who has purified his life, who is living for the glory of God, who is dedicated to the faithfulness of the Lamb, who is fighting against impurity. Now, now, now nowhere in Scripture, and you know this, are, are Christians described as perfect it's, it's not perfection here, not the absence of all sin, but sometimes when Westerners hear, well, we don't mean you're perfect, we translate that as sin and holiness doesn't matter. It's like the words, you don't have to be perfect to get into heaven, come out as, therefore, don't worry about sin at all. But that's not what it means. That's not what it means. You know, there, there is a pattern of life. That's what the Old Testament word blameless often means. It doesn't mean that David or anyone else was perfect in every sense in heart and action and deed. It means that their way of life was righteous before God, that they sought after God, that they fought against sin, that they could be described as being set apart to God's holiness. They weren't perfect in every respect, but they were holy and de- devoted to the Lord. Here's why this comes to us as a big warning sign. Who's going to be in heaven? Well, those redeemed by the Lamb, they're there because Christ died for their sins. They're there because Christ saved them by his atoning death on the cross. That's why they're there. But what are they like before they get there? 
holy. They're not there on the basis of their holiness, but those who will be there can be described as holy people. Now, again, in our, in our day, we are highly optimistic. We tend to say in our culture that even people who have devoted an entire life to unholiness are probably going to a better place. This isn't to discount deathbed conversions, the thief on the cross kind of moments. Now, I think, and pastors historically have said, those are highly unusual, though possible. But the point here is not to deny that someone could get saved at the end of their life. The point is to describe the lifestyle of those who follow the Lamb. The lifestyle of those who can have confidence that they will be in heaven. That lifestyle is a lifestyle of holiness, of purity, of righteousness, of truth speaking, of rejecting sin and living for godliness. That's the warning sign right here. Who are those who are on the road towards this victorious picture? Those who are dedicated to holiness. That's the heavenly preview that we get. Again, the accent here is is more on their, their way of life, their heart, though it also includes their security. They will get there. And if you want to know who is headed there, it is those who are following the Lamb, who are seeking purity, who are resisting sin, who are not minimizing ungodliness, who are not giving in to lying and deceit and slander and immorality. Revelation describes not three kinds of people on this earth, which we are prone to do. We are prone to describe three people in this earth. We are prone to describe there's righteous people who are zealous, there's good folks, and then there's wicked people. And by good folks, we mean good Christian folks. They don't do anything too terribly bad. They don't do anything too terribly good most of the time. But they're good Christian people. And then there's wicked people. And then there's righteous, zealous people. Somewhere between missionary and someone at a soup kitchen. And and basically, most of us kind of land in the middle. Revelation has no middle category. It doesn't mean everybody's a missionary. It means everybody views their life as a mission to serve the glory of God and the purpose of Christ. It means there is no middle category in the Bible. There's two categories. You're either following the lamb or you're serving the beast. That's the way Revelation views the world. And the way God views the world is the way we ought to view the world. You're either serving the lamb or you're not. You're either holy or you're not. You're either seeking God's glory in all aspects of your life or you're not. That's the way Revelation paints the picture. And this heavenly preview says those who will be victorious with the Lord on his mountain of glory in the end are those who are following him and rejecting the lie of sin and Satan right now. That's the heavenly preview. The next scene we might call the critical message. If I can imagine it this way, again, these scenes come in different eras. Here, here's the preview of those who will be victorious in the end, and here comes the message in the meantime, and we know that also because the saints are told as part of this message that this is a call for their endurance. So I think this kind of rewinds the tape and is looking to, okay, how do we do, what, what, what's the message right now in the midst of this fallen world? There's, there's first of all, three angels that come. The first one you notice there in verse 6 has an eternal gospel to proclaim. The word gospel means good news. And as with all of Scripture, the good news includes a reference to the warning of the bad news. 
It's good news because there's still time to repent of the danger. Just like the sign that said, road out, stop going this way, is actually good news. The guy that's in his truck with his airbag deployed would look back and say, you know, that was, that was good news. That was news, and it was good. And I didn't listen to that news, and now it's bad. In that sense, this is good news. It's news for every nation and tribe and language and people. There's that grouping again that says that God's purpose is to invite and command all. There's not just one nation, not just one ethnic group. No, it's people from all languages and all nations that are called to respond to this good news. And here's the command. Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made the heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. That's the good news. God, before he judges the earth, is giving you a chance to turn off the road. Turn towards God, the God who made everything, who owns everything. Before him, we have no rights. We have no privileges. We have no ability to demand. We cannot object to his ruling. He simply says, fear me and honor me and get off this road of destruction. That's the good news of angel number one. Angel number two describes the end of the system of this world in its rejection of God. Fallen, it says, is Babylon the great who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Now, Babylon at this time would not have been the great power that it was. So I don't think this is describing the literal city of Babylon as if it's the only city in view here. But the people who would read this would be very familiar with the idea of Babylon as that ancient enemy of God's people. They would go all all the way back further than that to the Tower of Babel that raised itself against God and against His glory. And they would see quickly, okay, this is speaking symbolically of the, the city of this world that rejects the glory of God. They would certainly think of Rome in their day. This is the city of this world that rejects God and lives in the passion of immorality. Again, I think it's exclusively referencing literal sexual immorality. It certainly includes that. It is that plus that as a metaphor for all the ways that this world has adulterated itself against God. He's saying that city that seemed to be having such a great time is fallen. We're not really familiar, most of us. Some, perhaps there's military people who have served here or in other, other areas of the world. But most of us are not familiar with, with brutal warfare. But in this day and age, when you say something is fallen, what would come to mind would not be you tripped or you had a, you know, a rough day or you lost your job. What would come to mind would be smoking cities, Ruined crops, land raised and sowed with salt, broken walls, slaughtered people, futures ended. That's what would come to their mind when they hear of a city that has fallen. Invaders and spears and swords and shields and burning and destruction and executions and crucifixions. That's what would come to their mind when fallen comes into view. They're not talking about an economic downturn. They're not talking about a, a, a regression or a depression 
or a low Dow month. They're talking about devastation, fallen, it says. And God says, this is so certain that though in, in this moment it's describing something that will happen, it's describing it as if it's already happened. God says, I see the future. And this city, this world, this city world that is against God and sets itself up as a rival to God, it is fallen, it is broken, it is destroyed, it is annihilated. The third angel comes with a loud voice and says to the individuals who have aligned themselves with that city, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead, and again, we made the point last week, I don't think it's a physical mark per se, although if anyone ever says to you, this is the mark of the beast, put it on your head. Well, don't do that. But I don't think we're to be, we're to be concerned that there's some secretive mark that we could get without knowing it. The, the point is, symbolically, symbolically, anyone who has allegiance to the enemy of God and follows his way of life is utterly warned here that their future is only torment. Their future is only torment. That's what it says here. He will drink the wine of God's wrath. The, the cup of wrath is described in the Old Testament as this, this terrible mixture of agony and pain compiled by the built-up sins that have defied God's holiness. And he will be tormented, it says, with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And lest we think this is just a brief temporary reminder, no, verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have, listen to this, no rest, day night these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Listen, the signs could not be more clear. If you don't obey God and his word, if you follow the immoral system of this world, if you give allegiance to the enemy, and be careful, it's, it's not technically ambiguous how you do that. It's not accidentally by buying the wrong product. It's actually by disobeying the clear commands of Scripture. You're not going to accidentally follow Satan, but you very well might intentionally follow him by choosing to disobey God. And, and this passage says the end of that life is eternal torment. I mean, the, the, he could not describe it he, he could not describe it more clearly. They will be tormented with fire and sulfur. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. They cannot sleep. Night is an agony. Day is an agony. There is no restful. There is no reprieve. There is no end. There is only torment forever and ever. And this is in keeping with the scriptures elsewhere that describe the ending of this road. This isn't just a sinkhole. This is a yawning chasm of indestructible pain and torment. And lest we have given into the idea that Jesus and God are basically nice and gentle people who have no interest in our bits squeamish at the sight of blood. Not so! Because the Lamb and His angels stand over this chasm, rightly affirming the end of those who would defy God. There's no emergency ropes thrown into hell. 
There are only a chorus of angels who have wondered why God waited so long, and the Lamb himself entrusted with the judgment of God's enemies, affirming that in light of the holiness of God, in light of the clarity of his signs of judgment, in light of the evident glory of the one who made the universe, those who would defy God and defile his people are those who will be in torment, and rightly so. So says God. Now, now we are prone to feel so uncomfortable with this kind of language. I don't, I wouldn't want to believe in, I can't can't think that's, that doesn't feel. If I can maybe biblicize a modern phrase that means all kinds of political things, I don't mean it that way at all, but if I can biblicize a little bit, hell doesn't care about how you feel about it. Hell doesn't care how anybody feels about it. It just is. Like God is. The signs are clear, unobstructed, unambiguous. It just is. There will be no calling out, yes, but I went to church. Yes, but my dad was a great Christian man. Yes, but I was a good Christian person. but I thought you were loving and kind. I was told I would go to a better place. I was sure I was good enough. Those calls will fall on deaf ears in that moment. There there is... (laughs) It's not Christian cruelty that describes the reality of, of this future It's Christian kindness that doesn't water it down. Because we stand on this side of the pit, holding up the warning sign to ourselves and everybody else, saying, it actually is that terrible. It's it's not unkindness. It's not like we think, boy, aren't I good with directions. No, no. We were rolling full steam, and for some reason, God reached out, picked us up, and slammed our face into the sign and said, do you believe it now? And turned us around towards heaven. We're just as dumb and proud and arrogant as anybody that we meet. The point is God has revealed, God has revealed to his people that this future really is real. And the word could not be more clear. Listen, Christians who are uncomfortable with the doctrine of hell are unkind to themselves and to everyone else around them. I would even say cruel. People that minimize or silence or avoid the doctrine of eternal damnation, it's like waving people on down that road. You do you. Be true to yourself. If it feels good, no. This critical message comes ahead of time, and it is good news precisely because it comes ahead of time. It also means, I think, that we should not look at this world with envy. Are you tempted to envy those that are living apparently a perpetual party? Oh, do not envy them. Pity them. Reach out to them. 
warn them, appeal to them, set a standard of life that makes their life seem very strange by comparison so that they might ask you, why don't you do all the things everyone else does? Do that, but don't envy them. This is their end. This is the end. For those who are following the Lamb, the word in verse 12 is a call for the endurance of the saints. And notice this phrase, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. I'll get to this in the end of the application, but just, just zero in on that phrase, those who keep the commandments of God. Listen, following the beast is not intellectually complicated. It is simply disobeying the clear commandments of God. I think it's highly unhelpful when Christians are told or it is implied that you could be accidentally following the beast. No, the, what it means to follow God is to obey his commandments. Sometimes it's the case that Christians can be so focused on the intellectual curiosities of speculation about what might be in the future, what might happen when they might have clear, unambiguous disobediences present in their life. I've, I've literally had conversations with people where I thought, You're, you are so caught up in the possibilities of what might be in the future when there is clear disobedience to clear teaching of Scripture in your life. Your determination to not be deceived intellectually is the means of your being deceived spiritually. God, God is not hiding the way of life from anyone. It's not confusing. It's not hidden on some website. Some prophetic preacher hasn't suddenly discovered the new mark of the beast. No, it's very clear what it means to follow the beast. It means disobeying the clear commands of God. The church is to be concerned with obeying the commandments of Jesus. Obeying him. Obeying him in all that he says, in righteousness, in love, in purity, in humility, in faith, in gentleness, in self-control, in godliness, in living for the glory of God, not the glory of self, in giving instead of hoarding. Th that's obeying. That's defying the beast. That's living for the right road. And the contrast with them and those who live for Babylon is in verse 13. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. They don't fear death. Death for not them is not the beginning of horrors. It's the beginning of rest. They don't fear death. Notice the reverse. Notice how the beast reverses. How people who live for the pleasures and sins of this world, they, 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 they view death with almost a kind of, well, it's been a good run. You ever heard that phrase, it's been a good run? As if this life is all there is to it, you get a good run and then you blink out. Or the more popular, you'll go to a better place. As good as it's been, it gets better. That's the beast talking. What Christ says is, it's going to be hard. You're going to have to fight sin and resist the ways of this world. It's going to be a hard run, and then it gets perfect. third section that continues with looking from a different angle, I might call the day of reckoning. The day of reckoning, this fast forwards again to the final moment and describes it as a harvest. 
Verse 14 says, I saw a white cloud and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. I agree with Dennis Johnson who talks about how it, it, unambiguously this would remind readers of the Bible of the great son of man who comes in Daniel. He has a golden crown on his head. It, it is highly likely that this is the son of man. This is depicting Christ who comes to harvest his people. The, the actual vocabulary of this first harvest, in, it, it seems to imply that it is a wheat harvest and the sickle reaps the wheat even as Jesus described the end of the age as a great reaping in which the, the righteous are gathered into the barn of heaven. That's what's happening here. The, the, the Christ comes back to the earth, this earth that has defied God, has seen all the warning signs and yet has continued in their way. And he sees his faithful enduring people and he gathers them to himself. Like, like a great reaping in the joy of harvest in an agricultural society. He gathers them to himself. But there is also a second reaping. In this case, an angel comes with the sickle, and he's commanded by the angel, it says in verse 18, who has authority over the fire. I think that would imply God's judgment, the execution of God's judgment. And he says, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. This metaphor of a grape harvest is used in the Old Testament as well. Again, the, the wine image is there where, where sin is viewed and, and, and it's offense to God as, as being storing up God's wrath. It's viewed here as a, a wine press. It's as if the sinner and his sin are identified in such a way that they are cast into this wine press and their guilt and condemnation are assured. So they are, not, they are not gathered for a joyful celebration. They are gathered to be crushed. And then the image changes at the end and, and the wine is turned to blood. The, the point here is annihilation and death and destruction for those who face that harvesting moment but are not God's people. They have stored up wrath for themselves. Their lives themselves give the evidence as the grape wood of the juice uh, of the wrath that they deserve. And the, the grotesque image of this river of blood High is a horse's bridle. Again, the, the emphasis here is not on their eternal torment. It's on the certainty of their destruction by the judgment of the Lamb. And it's supposed to be grotesque. If, if we're sort of, wow, that seems like a lot of blood. Yes, yes it does. Because there's a lot of sin. And there's a lot of sinners in all of history. And when that is reaped and God's justice finally flows down, that is a lot of blood. That's, that's what we're supposed to get out of it. I, I don't think we're supposed to be asking, okay, where exactly and how high, and horses are different height. No. The, the point is, it's a lot of blood because of a lot of sin and a lot of God's judgment now coming to fulfillment. The point is, when, when the Lord's day of reckoning comes, you are either with him or you are destroyed the point is that either we belong to Jesus and we are looking forward to an eternal future on that Mount Zion singing his song or we belong to Satan and we are seeking to worship the pleasures and cravings of our flesh in this age notice again there is no middle category of being sort of friendly with this sinful age and being friendly with Jesus. 
Revelation is a wartime book. The point is that there's, there is no tolerance in the Bible for sin. God is not a tolerant God. He's forgiving. He's gracious for those who come to him in repentance and faith. But he's not tolerant, not in the modern meaning of the word. Not in the you do you, as long as you're private, I'm good. Not, not in that, no, no. God is not tolerant of sin. He's not reluctant to bring final judgment. He's not squeamish and timid about a horrific future for the rebels of this age. He's, he's not a populist. God is not interested in saying or doing the popular thing. He is God. He is horrifying to his enemies and magnificent to his people. The point to anyone who reads this is put your horror and your hope in the right place. Put your horror and your hope in the right place. Let God's definition of the future shape your life today. If you're horrified of having a rough life on earth, and you're mostly hopeful in having a good life on earth, your horror and your hope are in the wrong place. If you're horrified at the idea of facing God without the protection of Jesus Christ and his blood, your horror is in the right place. If you're hopeful of a future with him, having followed him in this day to the end, your hope is in the right place. Put your horror and your hope in the right place. Let it line up with God's view of the road. Now, three words of application that came to my mind as I was reading through this. Just three words, obedience, evangelism, and security. Obedience, because this passage emphasizes the obedience of God's people. And, and sometimes we don't like the word obedience and commandments. We like words like faith and grace and forgiveness. And those are good words. We should love those words. But the Bible is not timid about obedience and commandments and purity and holiness. He doesn't, doesn't view it as a contradiction. Those who belong to Jesus obey Jesus. Those who love Jesus obey Jesus. This is why it's, it can be dangerous in our day in evangelicalism in America to talk only about the gospel of forgiveness and grace and righteousness coming to us and standing in our account if we talk about that in such a way that the commandments of God are a thing of the past and are irrelevant to his people. That's not the way the Bible speaks. That's not legalism to talk that way. That's Bible. Those who are forgiven by Christ, claimed by Christ, redeemed by Christ, going to heaven because of Christ, obey Christ. They obey him. Not just in the few commandments that make sense to them, in whatever he says. In whatever he says. That's why every time we come to God's word on Sunday mornings, I say, this, this is God's word. And if we want to be God's people, when he speaks, we obey. Commandments. Listen, we, we need to be very comfortable with the idea that we are people under command. We are people under command. And we all have some commands that we love because we feel pretty good about them. And we see a lot of people who don't. And some commands that we are super uncomfortable with that we try to find some way to explain away. And so what I want to point us to is those commands that we're uncomfortable with and say, no, nope, <laughs> the same captain issued those same commands. You don't get to decide which commands you want to obey. 
You have to obey those commands even if they're currently unpopular, and these commands even if they're currently popular, these commands that are easier for you, these are the commands that are harder for you. You can't just pick which commands you like because it's the same king issuing the same commands, and it's those who follow his commands that prove to actually be his people. The commands, those who keep the commands of God, they keep also their faith in Jesus. They don't have faith in their obedience. They have faith in Jesus as their redeemer. And they obey his commands. Obedience. Second word that came to mind is evangelism. First of all, the evangelism, in other words, the good news to anyone here, young or old, who has not believed in Jesus as your savior. <laughs> Please, this is the road. It is the road. I couldn't change it. You can't change it. It doesn't matter how you feel about it. It doesn't matter if you wish there was a different road. It doesn't matter what late night talk show host or modern comedian or meme tells you different. This is the road. According to God, this is the road. And he knows. This is the road. Defy God, reject God, and you will end up here. Love God and trust Jesus as your Savior, and you will end up on that mountain singing a glorious song. That is the road. So if you are here and, and you're not a believer, and I, I'm sure you have been told all kinds of things about how God, God overlooks things and God doesn't think it's that big a deal and just try to be a nice person and lots of stuff that you've heard and I've heard in this culture. It's all nonsense. This is the truth. And if you come to Jesus right now, this becomes good news. Because Jesus, Jesus is the only bridge over that chasm. He's the only bridge. And he invites you to come to believe in him, to follow him. He's a narrow way, as he said, in this life. It requires obedience. It requires admitting that you're a sinner. It requires laying claim on his forgiveness and his salvation and not trusting yourself. Those, those are all hard things. It's, it's narrow, as he described it. And it's easy, it's a broad way that leads to that big pit in the road. And many find that way. But he says, come, come to him and believe in him as the lamb who was slain for sinners. Come to the narrow way. And that leads to rest and life and joy. And yes, I, I know if I went on a, a late night talk show or a daytime talk show and, and they asked me, well, what, what do you really believe? I would say, listen, every person who doesn't believe in Jesus is going to end facing God's wrath. You just try to imagine that moment and how terrible that would sound in that moment. Oh, come on, chill out, man. We know better. We've progressed beyond heaven and hell. Well, God has not. And if God has not, it doesn't matter how you feel about him. The signs are clear unobstructed, unambiguous. It, it always provokes me as it always does. Even Aaron this last week was asking me, guys, how are you doing? Reaching out to those who don't know Jesus. I love, I love his faithfulness to ask that question. And, and I am so grateful. There's those in, in my community group that are sharing recently about people they are reaching out to, to to tell them the news about Jesus, to warn them before it's too late. Brothers and sisters, this passage and many others like it, it should remind us how can we tell people about this good news? The same way you would if you're standing on the side of that road. I trust you wouldn't just wave them on and say, ooh, that's going to be bad. 
third word it reminds me of is security. Notice the security for those who are in Jesus. They're, they're granted a place with the Lamb and His people. They're told that death for them is just a doorway into peace and rest. Even should someone come against them, that they are, they are faithfully following the Lord. They are obeying Him. They are living for Him until the time comes that He decides, not they, but He decides that it is their time to end this life and they need not fear that end at all. That, that's why in the church, we, we, we're not afraid of aging. We're not afraid of, afraid of terminal illnesses. We're not desperate to extend youth by any means possible. We're not afraid of dangerous missions for the glory of God. We're not afraid of spending and being spent for His glory and His kingdom, the building of His church. We're not afraid of those things. Because when time comes that our body runs out, you know what we get? Blessed indeed, they will rest from their labors and their deeds will follow them. This passage describes the future as hope and horror, security for those who obey Christ, horror for those who reject him. That is the future. These signs are clear. If you look to the future and you are looking to Christ and obeying him, have full hope. If you are tempted to be envious of this world or if you are currently following the ways of this world in some clear, evident, surrendered kind of way, let this horror direct you to Christ. That's what it's meant to do. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, the only reason we have hope to escape this future is because you took our punishment in our place and we find refuge in you. Lord, we, we live standing on the rock of ages and under your righteousness and under your forgiveness and with your name printed on our souls, Lord, we stand secure for the future. Lord, we trust ourselves to you. And in light of that, help us to obey you and follow you and run hard after you. For your name and in your name.